0: This is Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years, The Stories Behind Inventions. Episode 5. Let's play Monopoly. The history of science and the history of technology Tell of remarkable individuals who, through experiment, intelligence, coincidence, vision, toil, persistence and insight, transformed our relationship with the material world. Century by century, decade by decade, year by year, we understood governing laws and principles a little better and used that understanding to manipulate natural forces in ways that made our lives easier more comfortable, more exciting, and more fulfilling. This, at least, is one way of looking at it. Of course, the we encompasses not just people of genius, benevolence, humanitarian impulse, and a mission to improve the world. The we refers to humans, and we are all kinds of everything. Kind, greedy, cruel, capricious, brilliant, mean, Greedy, competitive, generous, greedy, ambitious, sympathetic, greedy, greedy, and greedy. I'm including myself in that, of course, and doubtless you'll want to think about including yourself, too. We are greedy for food, comfort, respect, admiration, and excitement, and greedy for pounds, dollars, and yens, the tokens that we think will buy us those and more. We are greedy for knowledge greedy for a better future, we are greedy for good and greedy for ill. That greed is part of the impulse that keeps us reaching out further, usually without much forethought, without much prudence, caution or inhibition, but nonetheless in some kind of beneficially forwards direction. I've talked over our last four meetings about some remarkable people and their inventions, innovations and technological leaps forward. I've talked about the investments in infrastructure that allowed the railroad, telegraph and telephone to crisscross the oceans and continents of the West, for example. This is not a social and political history, and I've not touched on the injustices facing the workers who built and kept these infrastructures going, and the corporations they became. I've not touched on women or people of minority and subjugated races and cultures at home and all over the globe. These issues are for another kind of podcast series— I wouldn't want to suggest that I'm unaware of such important elements in the history of our leaps forward. I sometimes think the story of our species is like a a basket of tangled threads of many textures and colours. To pick up just one of the threads and try and trace it through to its beginning is hard enough, but to attempt a sorting of the whole is just too confusing and certainly too difficult a task for me. I hope we all appreciate that in the broad outlines of what I've been trying to sketch are finer lines, all the intimate details of the lives, hopes, labours, loves and achievements of the millions to whom no memorial plaques were laid, no statues raised, after whom no towers, streets or libraries are named. I did make glancing reference to some of those large outline figures, the big four railroad barons like Leland Stanford, for example, and John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil, the steel magnate Andrew Carnegie, and the financier, or investment banker as we would now say, John Pierpont Morgan. They were titans of industry and commerce of great significance, but I want to concentrate. On a wholly new class of person that arose along with these entrepreneurs, industrialists and empire builders, a class of person without whom the inventions, goods and services these magnates offered would never have taken hold. It's a class of person almost wholly American in its character and origins, and the influence of its style and manner is still felt today everywhere. I'm talking about the salesman. The breed stretches from the snake-oil hucksters that travelled like Professor Marvel in their horse-drawn wagons across the developing Midwest via archetypes such as P.T. Barnum, Arthur Miller's Willie Loman, El McGantry, L. Ron Hubbard, Ray Kroc of McDonald's and the Simpsons' Old Gill and Monorail Man to charismatic communicators of the information age like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. There's always a whiff of evangelism, spieling, psychological coercion, glad-handing, showmanship, fakery, cult recruitment and hypnosis within the force-field presence of a true salesman. You can look at politicians and world leaders and see which ones have that touch and which don't. It's neither an insult nor a compliment, but just an observation to discern it clearly in Teddy Roosevelt, but not in Franklin D., in Martin Luther King Jr., but not in Nelson Mandela, in Bill Clinton, but not in Hillary, not in George W. Bush, but certainly in Donald J. Trump. The American political machinery has salesmanship built into its DNA. The National Party conventions with their bunting straw hats, rosettes and hail-fellow, well-met, rah-rah style are all founded in the culture of the salesman. You should know from the get-go—I can say that as we're being so American today— that I'm not weighting this with any value judgment against the world of sales and salespeople. There's nothing any more appealing in a snobbery that looks down on sales and business people than there is in any other kind of snobbery. I just want us to remind ourselves of the lineage, likeness and lineaments of salespeople before I dive into some extraordinary examples that were so influential in their achievements that they're almost as responsible for the information age as the scientists, technologists, and mathematicians whose insights first made it possible. But... First, to tie up a few loose ends from last time, we can look at a man who combined the brilliance, industry and inspiration of a great inventor with the ruthless drive, flair for publicity and huckstering rapacity of a great salesman. And that's the name that probably comes first to mind whenever we think of any inventor. Thomas Alva Edison. Amongst the more than 1,000 patents that Edison held were those for some of the most defining inventions of his or any other age. The phonograph, the motion picture camera, the light bulb, the stock ticker, the carbon granule microphone that I talked about last time. I've already emphasised enough, I hope, how important the telegraph was, as most successfully developed by Samuel Morse and Ezra Cornell. It gave Edison his start. Working as an operator for Western Union, he began to experiment with electricity and materials, famously working for days and nights at a stretch. He rarely washed or bathed, fired so deeply as he was by the need, the greed, to work and work and come up with new things. As success arrived, he relished his fame and enforced his patents fiercely. It wasn't just the sunshine that brought the movie industry to California. It was pressure. The early motion picture producers went west to escape the crippling costs of paying Edison patents on a couple of the essential parts without which movie cameras couldn't work. He created the Edison Film Trust and its agents scoured the East Coast towns looking for rogue, non-patent-paying filmmakers to sue or close down for Edison was nobody's idea of a gentle, philanthropic eccentric gushing with creativity all for the sake of humanity. He guarded his patents like a tigress protecting her cubs. Electricity was at the heart of much of what he achieved. He took the development of the battery much further, and of course his invention, simultaneous with Joseph Swan in Britain, of the incandescent light bulb, gave him skin in the power game. He wanted electric bulbs in American homes, and that couldn't happen unless American homes had access to electrical power in the home. Batteries weren't up to lighting a household reliably or cheaply enough to compete with gaslight and kerosene lamps. The answer was power generation. We'll make electricity so cheap that only the rich will light their homes with candles, Edison declared. His light bulb was not the first electric light, by the way. At this time, carbon arc lights were being used to illuminate streets and large venues like sporting arenas, with extreme brilliance. An arc light, as it were, lights the air between two electrodes. Edison's innovation was to find a practical way of lighting up a filament of wire so that it glowed. This filament glow, this incandescence, is the reason his bulbs were called incandescent lighting to distinguish them from arc lighting. Volta had shown wires glowing light 70 years earlier, but Edison perfected the technology with a mixture of carbon and, of all things, burnt bamboo. Edison took pride in the fact that his incandescent bulbs relied on low-voltage, direct current electricity, unlike arc lighting, which used alternating current with much higher voltages, up to 3,000 volts. If you think about it, to an American public and to American politicians, none of whom knew anything really about electricity, the prospect of a direct current of low voltage powering a glowing bulb in the home sounds much cheaper Easier and, frankly, safer than an alternating current of higher voltage powering arcs that reminded people more of lightning storms than of household lamps. DC seemed like a tamer form of the wild force that is electricity. Others working and innovating in the field were not so sure. The problem with direct current lay in its distribution. It could only travel along wires for less than a mile before losing its useful voltage. This meant that if the island of Manhattan, say, was to have DC power fed to homes, shops and offices, dozens of generating plants of power stations had to be on Manhattan too, belching out their smoke every 20 streets or so, from high above Harlem down to Wall Street and the Battery. The standard definition of the difference between the two types of current is that DC electricity flows in one direction, unlike AC, which periodically reverses its flow. For reasons whose physics is beyond my powers fully to comprehend or explain— Alternating currents' nature allowed late 19th century technicians in the field to utilise one great trick up its sleeve. With the use of transformers, they could step the voltage up and down such that they could generate it on Long Island, say, deep in the country and send it over wires at enormous voltages that were then stepped down to safe domestic levels. The crackling and buzzing noise, together with a fair amount of heat, tells us to this day that overhead lines do lose energy in the transmission. Quite a high percentage is lost, in fact, but so high could the voltage be from source that the process still proves economically viable as a competitor to Edison's DC or Rockefeller's kerosene. An American entrepreneur called George Westinghouse bought a lot of patents for transformers that would allow him to control the generation and distribution of AC power in a way that directly rivaled Edison's DC electric light company. For some reason, alternating current seems to have been most associated in its development with Eastern Europe. A Hungarian team known as ZBD or ZBD for Zipanowski, Blatty and Derry and the legendary Serbian-born Nikola Tesla were key figures in the development of AC induction coils, transformers and motors. Tesla's induction motor was an essential component for the generation of AC power and he made millions and millions in today's values from the licensing of its patent. By the 1880s, the battle lines were drawn for what was to become known as the War of the Currents. Westinghouse, and a rival AC company called Thompson Houston, began providing power to homes up and down Manhattan using cables strung high over the streets. New York, unlike Chicago and other major urban centres, had no regulations against high-voltage overhead lines. Edison whose company used underground cabling, now embarked on a remarkable and fiercely energetic propaganda campaign to discredit A.C. and to strike fear of its dangers into the hearts of the American public. A sensationalist press was all too happy to stoke the fires accidental electrocutions of linemen atop the AC company's poles and pylons were cited as examples of the danger posed by this high-voltage means of power transmission. Pamphlets went out, industrial espionage, and double-agent employees muddied the waters further. It all came to a head when the state of New York decided that hanging, as a penalty for those convicted of capital crimes, should be replaced with the new magical power of electricity. Edison and his fellow propagandists made much of how only high voltage AC current could be used for the executions, where 110 volt DC, they assured the public, could never kill. William Kemmer, The first ever to be executed this way took eight minutes to die. The witnesses were appalled by the smoking, the sizzling, and the stench of this form of execution. Those of you who have seen the classic film adaptation of Stephen King's The Green Mile will know what I'm talking about. "'Do you want to let into your house the kind of insanely dangerous power that fried William Kemmer?' Edison's tame journalists screamed. The Edison Power Company's 110-volt DC power couldn't stun a hamster. The viciousness of the propaganda war, the false information, the fake news, I suppose we have to call it, that fueled the American public's fears was intense. "'and Edison can have a finger or two wagged at him "'for pouring petrol on that fire "'by cheerfully allowing his well-known and trusted name "'to be used to help discredit the rival current. "'There is a fallacious idea "'that he even arranged for an elephant to be electrocuted "'to demonstrate the awful destructive power of A.C. "'In fact, Topsy, the fractious and badly behaved "'Coney Island resort elephant, was electrocuted,' But in 1906, some years after the War of the Currents had ended, it happened to be an Edison Film Company camera that caught the gruesome event. Topsy died much more quickly than poor William Kemmer, though, and this gave rise to the misapprehension. The fact is that the science and the economics were soon clear to all who had eyes to see, generating and transmitting alternating current was the way forward if electricity were to become a viable utility like water and gas. Edison, perhaps finally realising his DC company Edison Electric just wouldn't work to the profitable scale that AC companies could, personally lost interest in the generation and supply business and sold out his interests and seat on the board, leaving to concentrate on other things. The financier J.P. Morgan, who had a big stake in the game, having helped fund some of the patent buying that had been going on, now took charge. He merged Edison Electric with its A.C. rival thomson Houston into a new company, General Electric, which would generate and supply A.C. current. D.C. lost the war. Nikola Tesla had always believed that DC generation and transmission was a dead end, but he believed that AC transmission over high-voltage cables was the wrong approach, too. He persuaded Morgan to invest in a technology that would send electricity wirelessly using radio waves. I haven't mentioned in my wild, sketchy, and I dare say hopelessly muddled tour of the development of scientific thinking on electricity, how Maxwell's equations, those that proved Faraday's ideas about the unity of magnetism and electricity, and which opened the door to the feasibility of the reliable generation, transmissioning, and harnessing of electricity, also opened up the nature of electromagnetic radiation. It was the German physicist Heinrich Hertz who proved what was known as Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light. This utilisation of electricity in wave form freed the genie that inspired Marconi and Tesla to put electromagnetic radiation to work as radio waves transmitting information, in the case of Marconi, and power, in the case of Tesla. Sadly, J.P. Morgan pulled the plug on further investment, and Tesla's ambitious and extraordinary idea never found favor again. His castle in the air, Wharton Cliff Tower on Long Island, collapsed figuratively and literally. Tesla survived into the 1940s and lives on now in the unit of magnetic flux density, the Electric Car Company, and David Bowie's princely personification of him on film in Christopher Nolan's excellent The Prestige. There was certainly plenty of the huckster about Tesla, and there's no doubt that his accomplishments and his vision live on in our age today, but let's remind ourselves about this remarkable time, this late 19th century and early 20th. So few decades, such an incredible amount packed into them. Bear in mind that this age of Marconi and radio... Edison, Westinghouse and Tesla and power generation, Edison and movie cameras and recorded sound, Carl Benz and the internal combustion engine, the Wright Brothers and powered flight. This age is also the plush, gilt, fog, gaslight and handsome cab Victorian era of Oscar Wilde, Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. The Civil War in the United States, the man-on-man bloodiest conflict in the history of mankind, had ended in 1865. The period immediately after, known in the U.S. as the Reconstruction, saw a level of development and expansion that is eye-popping in its intensity and speed. I've mentioned the railroads, Vanderbilts, Carnegie, Rockefeller and so on, but beneath these titans, as it were, America was prospering with mills, factories, mining, commerce and productivity of all kinds. The first department stores opened. Leisure exploded, too, in the form of baseball and burlesque, vaudeville, boxing and Nickelodeons. There was something new in the world that drove it all, something that was beginning to be called business. There had been businesses before, the, the dry goods business, the funeral business, but business as an entity, an idea, a field of study in itself, this was new. Business exploited the new technologies before consumers, as we would now call them, did telegraph, telephone and electrically powered heat and light companies made their real profits by serving the business community who made even more profits themselves by exploiting the advantages, the edge that those technologies delivered. I want to look at something you probably haven't thought about for ages. It's a marvellous window into that world, and it serves as a pattern and prototype for so much of what we think of as pertaining exclusively to our wired and wonderful 21st century world. Let's look at the cash register, the till In shops now, you barely see them. They have metamorphosed so completely into a connected digital device. But think of that mechanism, sometimes exquisitely ornamented in chrome with its typewriter-style keys and the merry ka-ching that has stayed in our language. You press down the keys for each transaction. The drawer in the bottom opens and money is received and change returned. In the latter half of the 19th century, mechanised cash registers, or tills as they tended to be called in the UK, had become an essential for any decent-sized shopkeeper. They were first and foremost adding machines, of course, with a highly useful secondary function as a kind of mini-safe and anti-staff-pilfering cash box. The assistant, clerk or clerk, Input one price, then another, then another, and finally, ka-ching! The total button magically put up the grand total. The first model was invented by a man named Ritty in Dayton, Ohio. He sold out to a man called Eckert, who finally sold the rights to one John Henry Patterson, also of Dayton, Ohio, who named the business the National Cash Register Company, here and after N.C.R., Patterson is not a name with which many are familiar, but I would submit his influence was gigantic. I'd compare him, I think for good reason, with John D. Rockefeller. It's not complimentary to, but boy is it revealing and fascinating. Rockefeller, also from Ohio, Cleveland this time, not Dayton, founded Standard Oil, S-O, S-O a company which became so large and dominant that it was the subject of the first antitrust laws. Trusts were monopolistic corporations, often with harmless-sounding names like the American Bobbin and Shuttle, United States Rubber, and so on. The scheme was to buy up lots of little companies and agglomerate them into a trust which improved economies of scale, buying power, pricing, and therefore profits. Theodore Roosevelt hated them, and he is most associated with trust-busting, but it was the lesser-known president, Benjamin Harrison, who pushed through the 1890 Sherman Act, designed to defeat the trust's anti-competitive practices. The trust-busters saw that companies structured into trusts like Standard Oil, which effectively controlled the market in not just oil and gasoline, but some minerals and even whiskey, could, Once they had cornered a market, push up prices as much as they liked. No one was there to undercut them. More than that, once Rockefeller's Esso had a monopoly on filling stations in Texas, say— They used the huge profits from that to subsidise a move into a new region where they could sell gasoline so cheaply that the established local filling stations couldn't compete and would go out of business. Then they could put up their prices, safe in the knowledge that they had no competition. Segmented marketing, they euphemistically called it. Journalist Ida Tarbell dismissed by those she exposed as a muckraker, but actually one of a pioneering generation, like Upton Sinclair, of serious investigative journalists, spent an enormous amount of time researching Rockefeller's methods and exposed them in the influential 1904 History of the Standard Oil Company, serialised in 19 instalments that fascinated, appalled, and awakened the American public to John Dee's nefarious methods. As she put it, He, Rockefeller, applied underselling for destroying his rival markets with the same deliberation and persistency that characterized all his efforts. In the long run, he always won. Suddenly, being a successful tycoon, admirable as that was and fully consonant with the ideals of the American dream— seemed also to work against another part of the American dream, that which allowed the honest small operator to be able to start up their own outfit without being bullied out of business. Fairness. That was it. It just wasn't fair that huge cash reserves from one segment of a market could be used by a big corporation to subsidise another segment of the market and swamp and dominate it at the expense of the little guy. But it wasn't just bullying, mean and unkind, it stifled innovation and diversity. Monoculture in nature, planting only wheat fields or oil palm groves or paddy fields, is not just ugly, it causes species extinction and reduces variety, richness and biodiversity. The same in the business world. The big trust figures didn't see it like that, of course. They regarded anything that threatened their primacy as akin to nihilism or communism and as satanically un american Enough people in politics, however, a large enough section of the electorate, believed that something had to be done, and in 1911, after six or seven years of legal wrangling under the Sherman Act, the Standard Oil Trust, which was a holding company for scores of entities that in themselves controlled other entities that had a combined dominant stranglehold on the market, was broken up, into 34 separate companies. For most entrepreneurs, this was meant to serve as a warning. For some, like Patterson of National Cash Register, Rockefeller's techniques served as an inspiring lesson, a shining example to be emulated and improved upon. You're listening to Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. I'll be back after a short interval. Joseph Patterson's ambition and rapacity were boundless. Throughout the last two decades of the 19th century, he employed, under Washington and the national press's radar, identical practices to those used by Rockefeller and other big trust operators. Patterson built up an aggressive, no-holds-barred sales team with the aim of essentially driving out of business every rival manufacturer and supplier of cash registers In America, his application of the Rockefeller-style segmented marketing techniques allowed him to destroy independent second-hand cash register stores ruthlessly by sending in staffers to open up their own second-hand stores and selling machines for virtually nothing driving the competitors out of business. He put his money where his ambitions were and bankrolled the elimination of the used cash register business in Manhattan, for example, to the tune of a million dollars, enabling him to buy out all competitors. If you've a monopoly in one place, then the cash it generates, plus patience and a brutal ruthlessness that doesn't care about driving others to the wall, will guarantee a monopoly in another place— and so the tumour of your operation will proliferate. Patterson not only crushed the used cash register sector, he also went for competitors manufacturing new machines, many of which were better than NCR's product. After all, so great was NCR's hold on the market that they didn't feel the need to bother to innovate. Competitors did, however, and Patterson soon dealt with them. If a rival firm came up with a cheaper or better machine, he would think nothing of spending vast sums to wipe it off the surface of the earth. One way was to have his machine shops create identical machines to those of his rivals, pirating their badging, insignia and design exactly, and to sell these knock-off bootleg versions very cheaply, telling his team to pretend to be salesmen for the rival company. Not long after the machines were sold, they would fall to bits, so deliberately badly made were they. Patterson and his people would then take statements from the aggrieved shopkeepers, publish them as pamphlets, and leaflet the world with news of how the rival company made terrible product. It was ferocious, deceitful, and dishonest, and it held back innovation in the sector. He had enough money to sue rivals for patent infringements, even if they were absolutely innocent of any pirating. They would be tied up in court so long and it would cost them so much that they also would give up and leave the business. Meanwhile, he had his own engineers and technicians tearing down rival machines and stealing all the technologies they might be packed with. He really was a piece of work. No member of his team was a finer, apter pupil in these monstrous practices than an employee called Thomas J. Watson, an ambitious salesman from New York State. He had started off selling pianos and organs, then sewing machines, and finally cash registers for NCR. He took to Patterson's methods like a duck-to-orange sauce and soon rose to be one of Patterson's right-hand men. In fact, it was Watson that Patterson sent into New York with a suitcase filled with a million dollars to send all second-hand shops in Manhattan out of business. But Patterson was a mercurial character, for mercurial character read suspicious, paranoid, and ruthless son-of-a-bitch, and the federal antitrust lawyers had their eye on him. His disloyalty gave them a handful of ex-NCR employees to call as witnesses in the antitrust case that the U.S. government now brought against NCR. Patterson and Watson were each found guilty of illegal restrictive practices, fined $5,000 and sentenced to a year in jail. While awaiting this sentence, an increasingly unstable Patterson peremptorily fired Watson who had expected to inherit the presidency of the company. Instead, he was now out on the street, anxiously awaiting news of his appeal against the fine and prison sentence. The indictment aside, his reputation as a salesman who could develop markets and defeat competitors was such that Watson was invited to be general manager of a company called CTR, the Computing Tabulating Recording Company. It was made up of smaller companies, the Computing Scale of America that made measuring and slicing devices for butchers, fruiterers, grocers, and so on, International Time Recording that manufactured factory workers' clock-in timestamp devices and the like, and the Tabulating Machine Company. All three companies operated within CTR but didn't compete against each other. It was the Tabulating Machine Company that most caught Watson's eye. 1880 had seen the US census being taken, vast amounts of data collected from a hugely growing population. This information had to be tabulated. In other words, there had to be a way of making records that allowed government departments to cross-reference age, gender, family size, education, employment, and marital status, and so forth. Handwritten cards and pieces of paper stacked up, and people sorted these metadata, as we would now call them, tabulating the information on them and filing those tables. It was immensely time-consuming and generated huge quantities of paper and docketing. Using the data meant manually searching files. The moment the 1880 census was over... The 1890 census had to be planned, and the government looked for technology to help make this quicker and more efficient. Forward Herman Hollerith. Educated at the Ivy League Columbia University in New York City and at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, which was then less than 20 years old, Hollerith developed the mechanical principles of the jacquard loom and the piano roll into an idea that harnessed electromagnetism. What if information about a person, their marital status, say, or gender, which, in those days at least, were regarded as binary questions, male or female, single or married, what if that information were represented by a hole punched or not punched in a designated place on a card? Let us say married is a punched hole in one particular position, and no hole in that same position means single. Similarly, in another position, a hole means female, no hole means male. Oh, stop sniggering at the back, you know what I mean. If, then, an array of metal spring-loaded pins were presented to the card, where there was a hole, a pin would go through and contact a mercury cup which completed a circuit, sending a signal that triggered a clockwork device that moved a needle or shuffled the card to a particular destination. Enough questions, a big enough array, and a single card can hold a lot of data. The data can be sorted, tabulated according to whatever requirements you might have. No human has to look at the data on the card to read it. The machine deals with it, processes it, in a semi-automatic kind of way and thus was born data processing. It was called tabulation, and Hollerith's company called itself the Tabulating Machine Company of America, one of the companies held in the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, CTR, that was now run by Thomas J. Watson, the apt pupil of John H. Patterson, the apt pupil of John D. Rockefeller. Hollerith the inventor of the system, who had founded and run the tabulating machine company within CTR, didn't like this new manager Watson one bit. After all, Hollerith was a brilliant engineer and scientist, and Watson's brand of pushy salesmanship, as writer Richard Thomas de la Marta puts it, did not sit well with him. It was hard to make big money from data processing anyway, from tabulating, in the first part of the 20th century at least. It was fine once a decade, magically to speed up and improve census taking, or to apply the technique to some larger-scale corporate logistical and accounting requirements, but it was the First World War that really helped things take off for CTR, and especially the tabulating machine division armaments factories, railroad troop and freight transport, shipping, recruitment and drafting. All this was under federal government control, whose bureaucracy had to expand enormously to deal with unprecedented numbers of people, movements and therefore documents and data to manage all this. The Hollerith system was the only one that could achieve all that the government required. It had been subject to technical improvements, of course, since the early days. Now electric motors helped with shuttling and sorting the cards with greater speed, and printers could display the tabulated data as required. Watson's conviction on antitrust charges and his sentence of a year in prison was finally overturned in 1915, by the way. And with the war over... America grew and prospered into the 20s with a boom similar to the one the U.S. economy had enjoyed after the Civil War. Companies that had made armaments and wartime materiel turned to the manufacture of automobiles, tractors, aeroplanes and other goods for peacetime civilian use, but they remembered how the Hollerith tabulating punch card machines had helped their accounting and filing processes during the war and they wanted that business edge now in the civilian peacetime world. One thing worth noting is that Watson made sure an important principle was always adhered to. CTR never sold their tabulating equipment. It was always leased. It seemed a great solution for both client and supplier. The offices and factories didn't have to bother with the purchase and the maintenance of the machines. They were owned by CTR, who would install, maintain and service them, and replace them with newer, whizzier models as required. CTR also sold the cards that were necessary for the system to work. Companies were absolutely not allowed to buy cards from anyone else. They were just cards, admittedly of a fixed size and with fixed numbers of columns, up to 128 by the end, which the sharp among you will recognise as a magic number. If you double from one, you get quickly to 128, 1248163264128. We'll meet that progression soon enough. You can bank on it. So now we're into the roaring 20s, and CTR is doing very well providing machines for business, mostly in America, but outside too, enough to encourage a buoyant Watson to rename the company International Business Machines, which we will contract to its more usual designation, IBM. Between the wars... IBM came to prominence as really the only supplier of reckoning machines, data tabulating, and sorting machines. They leased them and sold the cards, but Watson knew that in order to make a real market for rental on the machines, he had to make them easy to use. His sales force understood all the requirements of accounting, stock control, and so on, that the companies had. The cards, with their holes, represented what we would call analytics – If sorted right, data and decisions for HR, accounting, inventory, ordering, invoicing, so much could be semi-automated. Electrical motorization made it all quicker and quicker. The data lay on the cards, and over time, new ways of sorting them and processing and utilizing the information that lay in their binary, whole or no-whole information structures became available. Plug boards, not unlike a telephone operator's switchboard, could be wired in such a way as to cross-tabulate and aggregate in one way, while another wiring configuration could sort and arrange data in another. Soon pre-wired plug boards suitable for specific jobs could be attached. A company might lease a machine and then rent four different plug boards for four different uses. A plugboard represented an analogue, hardwired version of what we might call a programme, software, an app, location. The three main jobs an IBM punch card Hollerith machine could do, high-speed sorting, tabulating and calculating, were beginning to have one overarching descriptive word. Computing. Ah, but how cunning Watson was. Welcome to the world of functional pricing. If a machine could sort X cards in Y minutes, then surely a machine that could do the same work twice as quickly, X cards in Y over two minutes, or sort twice as many cards in the same time, if you prefer, two X cards in Y minutes, surely that machine should cost twice as much. Picture my company, Fry's Widgets, that is anxious to try the benefits of this computing they've heard of that IBM provides. Fry's leases an entry-level machine from IBM that's pretty good at its job, but after a while, IBM lets me know that they can perform an upgrade on the machine that will allow Fry's double the processing power, but luckily for me, for slightly less than double the price. What a bargain! Of course, the machine is not owned by Fry's, but by IBM. What actually happens is that an IBM technician comes in and, like Professor Marvel turning into Oz the Great and Powerful, opens the machine and, not letting anyone come close to see the strictly secret and patented innards, he transfers a rubber band from one wheel to another, locks up the cowling of the machine, and voila! Twice the speed for less than twice the cost. Functional pricing. Paying according to the function, even if the increased function is virtually zero cost to IBM. The people at Fry's don't know that's all that's been done. They believe it's all complex, baffling technical wizardry and are thrilled at their super new processing speeds. I am not making this up. Watson's style was all zealotry and evangelism. In his NCR days, he'd brought in a card to hang over his desk that read THINK! exclamation mark in big capitals. At IBM, he had these put up everywhere, such that wherever an employee shifted their gaze, it had to fall on a sign that said THINK! The sales staff had to wear neat suits. Some say that it was the pervasive nature of the blue-suited sales teams that caused the company to be nicknamed the Big Blue. Others think it refers to the blue-chip nature of its stock or the blue colouring on the cowling of many of its machines. The name stuck and Big Blue was associated with discipline, profits and profits. Typical of the slightly North Korean side to his corporate culture were the company songs like International is our name, it well befits our line Serving in all nations, we're known in every clime Just watch us grow from year to year until the end of time Our IBM Corporation This hit was from the 1927 songbook Songs of the IBM In 1934, just ten years after the renaming of CTR to IBM, Watson was the highest-paid executive in America. His salary of $364,342 a year equates to over $6.5 million today. By 1940, he was earning $546,294. That's nine and a half million a year. Only Louis B. Mayer of MGM earned more that year. But the US government was on Watson's trail again. The Watson Leopard hadn't changed its spots since NCR days. IBM was essentially a monopoly. Its only real rival was Remington Rand, and Watson had cut a deal with them guaranteeing that neither would trespass on the other's turf. They agreed to produce punch cards that uniquely fitted their own systems. Only IBM compatible punch cards worked on IBM machines, and Remington Rand on Remington Rand. And this was what the government initially focused on the illegal price fixing that this arrangement revealed. Watson was, by all accounts, distressed and affronted to have his probity and honour so questioned, especially annoying since it was the FDR administration that he had supported with such enthusiasm and money that brought the charges. He lost and had to agree to opening the market in punch cards to others. World War II was a murky time for IBM. Their German division... DEHO-MAG, standing for Deutsche Hollerit-Maschinen-Gesellschaft, headed by Willi Heidinger, a keen supporter of Hitler, was used for the immensely complex gathering of racially profiled census information that was instrumental in the logistics and implementation of Nazi-Jewish policy. The data gathered went to help with arrest, relocation and transportation. To give Watson his due, he was disturbed enough by the Nazi regime's treatment of Jews to give back a medal he had received from Germany honouring his work there. When Germany declared war on the USA in 1941, Dehomag separated itself from IBM in terms of governance, but it seems IBM subsidiaries throughout Europe, with the active encouragement of senior executives of the parent company in New York, continued to supply Deomag. Edwin Black, in his 2001 book, IBM and the Holocaust, traces enough enthusiasm from IBM in their dealings with Nazi Germany, their second biggest territory after the US, and enough enthusiasm on the part of the Nazi regime for IBM there was an IBM so-called Hollerith department in every Nazi concentration camp, to feel able to state, quote, without IBM's machinery, Continuing upkeep and service, as well as the supply of punch cards, whether located on-site or off-site, Hitler's camps could never have managed the numbers they did. After World War II, the government brought, in 1952, a second civil antitrust suit against IBM, again vexing to Watson as this time he had helped bring Eisenhower into power and now it was his administration going for him. This new legal action charged that Big Blue owned more than 90% of all tabulating machines used in the United States, enough to be called a monopoly that restrained and constrained trade and restricted and constricted competition. IBM's rentals were estimated by government lawyers to amount to $250 million. In today's money, that's nearly $2.5 billion in annual rentals alone. A consent decree was signed under which IBM finally agreed to offer its machines for sale, to set up a separate company to service machines, to supply parts and data to other companies servicing equipment, and to release its patents for licensing. But that wasn't the end of IBM's shenanigans. Ruthless anti-competitive practice seemed to be in the DNA of the company now, thanks to Patterson's influence over Watson and Watson's influence over his own son Thomas Jr., who was at this time being trained to take over. The lesson they learned was to use profits to crush the competition, breaking antitrust law on the way if you wanted, because the profits you gained were enough to protract cases in law for so long that while you may have to concede here and there, administrations will have changed and got bored and confused by the technicality and the sheer persistence of your lawyers. Monopolistic practice is as much about control of the judicial system as it is control of the market. But this new case of the US government versus the IBM corporation is especially interesting because Remington Rand at exactly that time introduced a new kind of tabulating, aggregating, sorting and computing device. They called it UNIVAC which stood for Universal Automatic Computer. You could buy it for $159,000, about a million and a half in today's money. It occupied 342 square feet, quite a footprint. If you were to open it up and look around it, you would be puzzled. Where were the pins that read the holes in the cards? In fact, where were the punch cards? What was going on? For the UNIVAC was something new in the world, new outside universities and research labs at least. It was not a punch-card Hollerith computer at all. It was run by those objects we looked at last time, the evacuated glass tubes derived from Lee de Forest's Audion device, the triode vacuum tubes, or thermionic valves, whose ability to switch current allowed the Bell Company to string a line from New York to San Francisco and gave rise to a new science called electronics. The UNIVAC was the world's first commercially available electronic digital computer. To find out how this came about and where it will lead, we have to wait till next time, when we look at a juggling, chess-playing unicyclist called Claude and a stuttering lover of daisies called Alan, who ran long distance to an Olympic standard. What they did blew the mind of the world. Before I go, I will leave you with two stories that demonstrate the, um, shall we say, double-sided nature of invention and innovation. Two great chemists had lives that serve as a warning to us all. The first was Fritz Haber, a brilliant German chemist who won the 1918 Nobel Prize for his synthesis of ammonia, from nitrogen and hydrogen. This opened the door to creating a whole new generation of fertilisers that is calculated over time to have saved billions from starvation. Before his innovation, known as the Harbour-Bosch process, farmers had only animal dung, compost, or if they could afford it, guano from South America, the white seabird poo chipped from rocky outcrops in the Humboldt Current off the coast of Peru. Harbour's discovery is ranked as one of the great achievements of chemical science. But three years before the prize was given, another of Harbour's inventions had shocked the unprepared Allied troops in Flanders. His phosgene, chlorine gas, was ordered to be used under his personal supervision by the German High Command during the Second Battle of Ypres. Harbour's wife Clara, herself a brilliant scientist, the first woman to earn a PhD from the University of Breslau, was so shocked at what her husband had done, she committed suicide. He was busy overseeing a gas attack on the Russian front, and it was their thirteen-year-old son who discovered Clara's body. When the Nazis came to power, this great German patriot, as he believed himself to be, was, as a Jew denied all academic or research tenure and he died in unhappy exile in 1934. The greatest blow to his reputation came after his death when the Nazis took a chemical he'd been working on as a pesticide and used it under the name Zyklon B as the lethal gas for the extermination of so many millions of Jews in the Holocaust, including Haber's own extended family but ironies pile on ironies, mustard gas was discovered to have a strange effect on white blood cells, such that it became the first of the family of anti-cancer chemotherapy drugs, saving many with some forms of leukemia and other white cell cancers. So Harbour saved billions with one chemical, caused horrifying death and maiming with another, losing his wife in the process, enabled genocide with yet another, and gave the world a viable treatment for cancer too. Inventions and scientific developments on their own have no moral valency, no inbuilt propensity to good or harm. How we use them is all. Take the case, finally, of poor Thomas Midgley Jr. of Columbus, Ohio, another brilliant and gifted chemist. The list of awards and prizes he won for his developments, insights and discoveries is long indeed, but he is almost entirely remembered today for two astoundingly influential yet imponderably baleful and disastrous innovations. He solved the automobile industry's problem of engine-knocking, or pinking, as it's called in Britain, by creating tetraethyl lead as an additive to gasoline. Yes, he is the man who put lead in petrol, and thus into the atmosphere. How much terrible, indeed lethal, injury to children's developing brains, to the lungs and systems of how many millions of people, animals and plants, this single idea caused— It is almost impossible to calculate. But that is not all Thomas Midgley managed. He also discovered and developed Freon, the trade name for the first of the chlorofluorocarbons that became widely used in air conditioning, fridges, industrial cleaning and aerosols. This family of chemicals is commonly known as CFCs and was responsible, as we know, for creating and widening the hole in the ozone layer that, before the banning of CFCs, racked up uncountable death and injury from skin cancer and related terrors. Thomas Midgley has been described as having had more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. And that impact was all bad. His death was suitably grotesque. Midgley became disabled as a result of an attack of polio that restricted his mobility considerably. Being of an inventive turn of mind, he put together a series of straps and pulleys attached to a harness that allowed him to lift himself in and out of bed, unaided. Unfortunately, one day he got twisted and trapped in the workings of his own invention and accidentally strangled himself to death. Next time, we will look at the rise of information theory and the universal machine. We'll look at the discovery of a world-changing device that should have been called the IOTATron, and how a valley of apricots and almonds was colonized for other purposes. If you have been, thanks for listening. This has been Stephen Fry's Great Leap Years. Grateful thanks to our composer, Guy Farley. Also thanks to the Audio Network. For further information on the podcast series, visit stephenfry.com forward slash Great Leap Years. Great Leap Years is produced by Andrew Sampson and Norman Goodman. This is a Sam Fry Limited production.